This is the Things I Haven't Done podcast, hosted by El Clinto Negro. The name speaks for itself, so stay tuned. Skip, I appreciate you taking the time out today. You are a musical legend. How, how did your journey with music begin? It's strange. I was living in Paris when I was, you know, eight, eight through 12, or something like that, eight through uh, seven through 11. And, um, you know, I had uh, various, my parents had various music in, in the house, but, you know, I couldn't relate to it really much of it. I mean, it was classical music and the only thing that I really strongly related to and actually uh, was a uh, very important factor as far as direction and vibe is that my mother and father were huge Harry Belafonte fans. Mm. And, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with all of his work, but he covered a lot of stuff from around the world. And he actually introduced me to the folk music of the world. Wow. And, you know, so I, I, I you know, I related to that. And you know, uh, French radio was and still is and always has been strange. <laughs> I mean, French pop, Italian pop. And, and when, then when they try to do other types of rock and roll, I mean, it's, you know, it's out, man. I mean, you know, they idolized Jerry Lewis and shit. So, you know, I mean, I, what is this? So one day my father says, look, we're going. My father was uh, attached to the embassy and NATO at that time. NATO was in Paris. Uh, and uh, he said to my brother and I, OK, before you go out, it's like a Saturday. We're going to go to uh, PX which is a, a, a store on the military base. We get everything for cheap. And we're going to buy records. And, like, I mean, I had, you know, Davy Crockett or whatever. You know, I had this little 45 spindle uh, record player and just, you know, silly, silly records with multicolored vinyl and stuff. And, you know, we're like, what? We're going to what? Oh, jeez. All right. So we just... <laughs> My brother and I said, look, as soon as we get into that, that's just the first thing we see. Let's grab it and get out so we can get out on our Saturday. Okay. And um, and we got four sides. We got EPs for 25 cents. It was uh, it was great. So we I, we walk in. I just look up and point to Elvis Presley. Hmm. Uh, I don't I never heard didn't know nothing. It was the first one on the end of a bent, you know, on the, in the aisle. Mm-hmm. Next to it is Hank Williams' My Brother Buys That. All right, so good, we fulfilled. We go home, I'm about to go out, you know, to play with my friends, and my mother says, you know, you got to go up and at least, you know, listen to this once. Uh, all right. So my mother kept telling the story. About four to five hours later, I came down. Everything changed. <sighs> Everything changed because, you know, I was very skeptical about shit in general, even at eight. Like I wasn't buying into what I was taking in about society and about the people that would surround me. And I I just it, it wasn't right. And I heard in those four early Elvis Presley cuts, which were the early stuff, you know, very early stuff. 54, 55, whatever. You know, oh my God. It's like the trumpet in the night. There is an alternative. There is hope. There is another sound. It wasn't just the music, it's what the, the feelings that the music brought up in me. And I just, from that moment on, it was about hustling quarters and getting records. I was out of my mind. I was, uh, and I didn't know. Now, I didn't have radio. I didn't have anything. So, you know, as soon, whatever it was, the next time I'm in there, I pick up, who's this Chuck Berry? Who's this little Richard? Who's this Lloyd Price? Who's this, you know, and I just take them up. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I even hustled the ambassador to France. <laughs> my father kicked my ass down 12 blocks. I hustled him to go down around the corner from the embassy and buy me some records. 
Nice. I, I swear to God. <laughs> You know, how you doing? I'm, I'm trying to get some money to buy records. <laughs> so I'm, listen, you know, I'm in heaven, man. All of this stuff and, you know, Boney Moreau, all this stuff from the 50s, the beginning of contemporary, when Boogie Woogie turned into R&B, when all those different types of music became rock and roll. It was just freedom. And then the next big step was, you know, we got off the boat in New York City coming back. Okay. I'm in a cab. We're going over the bridge. And the drifters were coming. Uh, Benny King and the drifters, this magic moment was mm -hmm. coming on the radio. Crazy. And I just said to the cab, well, is this on the radio? And he looked at me and go, yeah, and there's lots of stations. <laughs> I lost it. Got a transistor radio. I'm gone. I am gone between the radio. I mean, I was under my pillow at night. I was listening to 50,000 watt, uh, watt undirectional stations so I can pick up Chicago at night, Boston at night, you know. Oh, wow. All, all the New York City stations, all the Philly stations, Baltimore, Washington, you know. And then, you know, I started writing music with a friend, a friend of mine, a friend of mine in high school, uh, Ninth grade, uh, mother bought him a guitar for Christmas, and uh, we started uh, writing songs. I started putting people together. It was just like, there was no question where I was headed. I just didn't know anything about where I was headed for. But I knew that I had to be involved in this process that saved my life and sanity hmm. and showed me that there was some hope in a different point of view, which was the bottom line when you cut through all of it. Why did these push these buttons? Well, it was the change, just like anything. It's cyclical. cyclical. It's just, you know, the sign of a new point of view, new change. So I started joining groups. I formed groups. I was in groups. My really? first venture was getting three gals in my high school, and we went to a, a small recording studio and covered a Supremes tune. Okay, how old know, were you then? Fifteen. Oh, wow. 14, 15. Oh, no, I had my first record out when I was 16 or 17. I was in groups that, and records at that time in the 60s, it was about single songs. It was about mm -hmm. singles. Nobody really was dealing with albums. It started, albums started to become popular with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles starting to sell albums, but it was all singles before that. And even during the beginning of all that. So I was on Columbia, I was in groups at Columbia, Bell, Cap, Lord. And then I had my own as a solo, I almost said artist, as a solo singer. <laughs> I had my own, I had, I ended up with my own um, solo deal on Audio Fidelity on their karate label. Oh. And then, you know, I was a good performer, but I just didn't really like it. And I didn't really have a great voice. I was a very good performer. But, I mean, I got on, uh, I was signed by Premier Talent, the top uh, agency in the world at that time. Frank Barcelona's Premier Talent. And he had all the major acts. And I was, you know, I opened for the Beatles with a group. I opened for the Rolling Stones. Blah, 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 blah. How was that? Oh, it was a trip. Especially with the Beatles, when there's a hundred thousand people and you couldn't hear shit, their PA <laughs> systems were non-existent. There was one tune they started in different keys, wow. and they were just laughing. Nobody knew shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was surreal. You walk out and there's a hundred thousand people screaming, constantly screaming, never letting up. It was it was weird. Uh, the Stones trips were better, the better uh, acoustics, you know, not, okay. not huge football stadiums. And then I just sort of, you know, I got, I just, uh, I didn't have a great voice and I didn't see me really going anywhere there. And I was really interested in the process mm. of making records. And the deal at that point was that, you know, it was just the beginning of the art form of making records in that multi-track started to come in it went from two track three track four track and then jumped to eight and 16 within two years and boom to 24 then to 48 where you linked two 24 track machines up etc 
so you could actually paint, add, subtract, attenuate, you know, do, really get in and, 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 and make a record any way you want. And I've actually made records just every single way that they can be made. And a friend of mine that I started off in high school with, one of the two people, mm-hmm. went into uh, record production and uh, actually had a hit on Atlantic and uh, an instrumental, so I forget what it was, and uh, and he, he, he invited me down to the studio in Philly, which was Sigma Sound. You know, Joe Tarshi just started Sigma. And I hung out with him for a while. He asked me to help him mix this album for Electra, and I did. And I then realized what I wanted to do. It was there. I was in my last semester in university. I quit because <laughs> I was majoring in communications. But at that time, communication was film and TV and stuff. They didn't. And radio. They, you know, mm-hmm. the, the art form of record production didn't even exist. So I started second engineering just for a few months. And then I was fortunate enough to meet John Coltrane six months before he died. At Sigma? No, no, no. I met him in in Philly in 66. Okay. And no, it was just at at a gig. Oh, wow. Look, I went to a gig and John Coltrane was playing and... Well, it was a religious experience and I'm not fucking around. (laughs) I, I mean, I had never experienced anything like that, nor, nor have I since, by the way. You just don't. Or if you do, it's once in a lifetime. But anyway, he turned me on to his cousins, okay. Earl and Carl Grubb. They were called Visitors. And I went to see them in a uh, performance in Philadelphia in, I don't know, it was 1970. I forget. And boom. I I wanted to make a record with them. So I had been doing singles. I had been doing some stuff in Sigma. And Joe Tarsia gave me the time. Another two guys that were good, were friend, good friends of mine that were just starting to produce and had a hit or two. Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. Mm-hmm. Pay, yeah, Kenny and Leon said, hey, man, pay, we'll pay for the musicians because we know that you're on your way. And, you know, I, just, you know, I thought to myself, what? Okay, you know, I don't turn down money. Exactly. And so I cut the record, went to New York, just had a few appointments made, sold the record immediately to Buddha's uh, Cobblestone, and that turned into a production deal. Okay. And that that first album, I mean, uh, of the Visitors was just unbelievable in that genre of Afrocentric jazz of the late 60s uh, and early 70s. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just went. Then I signed Catalyst, which was a group in Philly with Eddie Green and Sherman Ferguson, Alfonso Johnson, who later, of course, we had quite a long uh, relationship, and I signed him to Epic. And, uh, you know, I just kept going. Then I signed, uh, uh, the, the head of the label said, look, the, the, the uh, Newport Jazz Festival is happening that year for the first time in New York City instead of uh, Rhode Island. And all of these stars are going to be here. We should try to do something. Well, another friend of mine was Stanley Clark, and he asked me to come up and he, he suggested I come up and see him in a gig in Philly with Rossan Roland Kirk. It was unbelievable. Stanley Clark on bass, Rossan, Herbie on, on keyboards, and Norman Connors on drums. And I loved Norman's style of the within the music he was playing. And so, you know, I asked him to come over to my apartment the next day, and I said, "Look, I want to. Let's. I'll, I'll sign you." I mean, he didn't write. He didn't, he was a drummer, but it was just like a figurehead. It was very much like the Quincy Jones albums that Q used to do uh, in the old days, which was really just him and other artists that he would bring in for different tunes and whatnot. So I, I, you know, I called Herbie and we had an all star cast on that first album. It was incredible. I think we had five star reviews and downbeat and blah, blah, blah. 
and uh, you know, I just took off and didn't look back. And seventy, and we're talking after a career of over seventy-six or seven albums. Wow! So yeah, when you signed Norman, you just knew him as a drummer. You didn't know about yeah, him. Yeah, it was a drop. I got to tell you, like it's a Friday night. Okay. I see him at this club with Rasan. We talked afterwards. I invited him over to my apartment in Philly for the next day. And just ran it down to him. I said, "Let's. You want to make? You know, of course, I want to make a record." <laughs> and Stanley had talked to uh, Norman about me, and you know, Norman was an, a really interesting guy, and a very interesting stylist in certain types of drumming. Though he could not keep a four-four beat to save his life. <laughs> D- don't ask me, but it just was not. It was foreign to him. And I would put the, all those albums. I would put together the musicians, all the songs, all the singers. And uh, just let Norman know when we were going to cut and rehearse and cut. <laughs> <laughs> and at, at one point, when we made that transition into more of a and what they what the media people called adult R and B or Quiet Storm, as I think I told you, Smokey Robinson said. To, I, I, I con- congratulated Smokey on, uh, and we were in a. I was in his office, and he said, "Skip." Yeah, I said, "Hey, man." You know, Quiet Storm was number one. I said, congratulations, again. And he said, Skit, you're the guy who developed that. I said, what are you talking about? He said, it was your albums with Norman Connors and those a few other artists in the early and mid-70s that started this whole format. And I looked at him, I said, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess so. And he laughed his head off. <laughs> and so Norman didn't even play drums on in the last, like, two or three albums that I did or four albums with him he would play drums only on like two or three cuts oh, wow. I would play the drums uh, Eddie Green Harvey Mason various other studio people would, would play the drums because he could not deal with a 4-4 it was just too stiff and he didn't know how to swing it yeah like Starship that's me now by the way that's you on the drums <laughs> I, he, yeah it's sad as hell but it's better than he was you know and then we get to the song now the trip this song we're cutting this record miles oh man where do i start okay for those that don't know you're talking about starship right yeah okay okay yeah i got to know miles uh during bitches brew okay sessions and for some reason he took a liking to me, which blew many people's minds. Uh, I have no idea why. But, uh, you know, he introduced me to Eddie Henderson, who I produced seven or eight or, all, all, you know, lots of albums with Eddie. And Eddie was taught by Miles. Miles' father and Eddie's fathers were best friends. And so Miles started turning me on some various people, and I would turn on, turn him on. He was going through different groups in the late '60s and, and in the '70s up into the '80s. I turned him on to Reggie Lucas and Reggie and, and M, James M. Tume, whom I signed uh, to my label with Epic later. And uh, James uh, Tombs and um, Reggie were involved and I, I introduced those two and those two became a writing and production pair which of course you know I'm sure yeah. and they told me about this bass player no Miles did Miles mentioned this crazy bass player out of Detroit <laughs> that he that was in his group and then I checked with Reggie and to make a long story short you know I invited him to join on one of the albums and one of his songs that he brought along and again, this was similar to Starship in that we were in San Francisco, and at the end of the date, we had about 20 minutes left before the Jefferson Starship or something was going to come in and take the room. And Michael said, hey, listen, check this out. We go to the piano. He plays me Valentine Love. And I know right away, immediately, that's a hit record. That's a hit song. So he said, let's cut it. I just looked at him. We did one instrumental take with the people that were there some people had left the date because the date was over i did some edits he jumped in did his lead vocal because it was a duet 
and I think it was, was it was Gene Karn. I forget who I did the, the duet with, but let's say it was Gene. And uh, it was a it was a smash. So the next next track, I invite him on the next record. You know, uh, we cut most of the tracks. I went was in a bathroom, and I heard coming out of a uh, stall. I heard, uh, you know, you are in my starship. Pause, my. I said, what? I said, who's that? <laughs> Michael. What is that? All right, he finishes up. We meet him back in the control. I said, what? Are you? Eh, just fiddling around with a few changes same thing i said let's go let's go let's we had everybody there i said let's just cut a track we cut a 15 minute track we used the whole length of the tape wow just over and over the sections because it wasn't really a song okay it was just an idea with a little half a melody and we cut the track he had to go out with miles and i had to go i was in the middle of two or three different records at once which was insane and how I managed to do that because they were in different cities. And um, so we agreed to meet back in New York about a week or two later. We went into Electric Lady okay. to it's just he and I and an engineer because I had to jet back to San Francisco to do something and he was leaving, you know, miles of the band were going out again and he had to go. And we, he made a finished, I should have gotten, actually, I should have gotten at least a third writer's credit on that, but whatever. We put the song together. We put the melody together, wrote the lyrics right there in the control room. He went out, and inside of 45 minutes, the whole lead vocal was done. And then he and I did the background vocals, and we both headed for the airport. Wow. I take the tapes back to New York. I mean, have the tapes sent to me to L.A. because I'm starting Lee Rittenauer's album. And at the end of the date, my tapes from New York came in, the Norman Connors tapes. Okay. It happened to be the same alignment on the tape machines. And, uh, well, I'm jumping ahead. I was with um, uh, Ian Underwood. I don't know if you're familiar with Ian, but if you, when you check him out, you'll know that you... I've heard him for many hours in your life. Okay. Ian was there uh, on the day, on the lead date, and he was still hanging around. And he had this, he said, Skip, let me show you something. And again, we had about a half an hour before the next date was coming in. It was the end of a tracking. Lee went now his first tracking session for his first album on Epic. And he showed me, he says, I just came from uh, Switzerland. I picked up this Italian organ. Yeah, I go, yeah. He goes, listen to it. The upper third sounds in a strange way, sort of stringish. And he plays it. I go, yeah. And I start thinking, you know. Now, I had just received, uh, I, I endorsed an effects company out of New Jersey called Musitronics. They made some of the first wah-wah pedals, the first effect pedals, the first stereo bi-phaser. And they would send me prototypes of everything they were working on, and I would give them a shout-out on the back of the albums. Okay. You know, that I use this exclusively, blah, blah, blah. So, coincidentally, this is all fucking, this whole record was coincidence. From the very inception, from the bathroom to here... I was listening to that for third, and Musitronics had sent me their new biphaser. I had the only prototype biphaser outside of the factory or wherever they developed it, you know. And I said, let's put that organ, which is fucking around. Mm -hmm. You know, me, the engineer, and, and Ian, and then some cartridge people are, are taking instruments out of the studio and others coming in, you know, getting ready for the next date. I said, let's put this thing through the biphaser and i don't know what it were i'll just turn the buttons and i'll just turn the knobs and you play let's see what this shit's about <laughs> so so you were unaware is this well what this was was the it was called a selena organ okay. which then arp bought and that became the arp string ensemble so we had the prototypes of two things in that control room, along with the master tapes of Starship and or Norman's whole album. And if you don't know what the Arab String Ensemble, you've heard it maybe fifty thousand times in your life. 
Okay. Everything in strings and synthesizers in the 70s and the 80s was, there, it was the ARP string ensemble. As a matter of fact, it was one of Prince's featured axes. Really? Yeah, and we had this prototype. So I, I, I when we were fucking around, I just thought, oh, there's a wonderful ethereal sound I'm hearing. This would be perfect to extend the vibe of Starship. And luckily, the the machines were aligned this, the same for the date that was coming in as my Norman records was. I think it was plus three, whatever. So I just looked at the engineer. We had about 20 minutes. I said, knock, put, quick, put this on right away. Boom. Puts on the tape, pull up some faders, got some tracks. And Ian and I did two stereo passes of that swirling string sound effect. Okay. And then boom. You know, I think it was, you know, the next date start, you know, was coming in. Boom. <laughs> so then I mixed it up. And, uh, I mean, you know, finished the album and finished the record. I told Buddha, I, I said to the record company, I said, this is a hit. They they didn't, they thought I was crazy. I mean, you know, listen to Gary Bond, uh, you know, it's the only pop tune up to that time or I think since that had a, a B7th, a minor solo i mean come on man you know it was like left but i just knew that beyond the type which i've done my whole life that is i've always tried to mix things up okay. i was one of so many producers that helped the that brought along the fusion movement especially the fusion of jazz and r&b mm -hmm. and and so the, the the promotion people thought I was out of my mind. I said, don't think in normal structures. Think of the vibe. People are really tuning to a vibe, you know? you know? But of course, they were record company people. They didn't know. They didn't release that tune until the third single, and it went to number one, pop, number one, you know? Boom. And we had two hits before that off the album. That album sold 1.7 million. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, it just uh, came around. And that same album, by the way, before the Starship thing, I we cut some tracks, and it was about 2 in the morning, and somebody said to me, hey, you should see this, come down the village uh, and see this singer who just came in from Pittsburgh. And she did her first night last night, and she's done another night at this little club, and she has a 3 a.m. performance. And I, I guess it was the enthusiasm. I forget who it was, but I said, okay, you know, sure, why not? We went down, and that was Phyllis Hyman. That's amazing. <laughs> she finishes her set. First time she's out of Pittsburgh. And I said, you want to uh, you want to go cut a record? She just looked at me, what? We went, we were back up in the studio at 4.30, 5, 5 o'clock in the morning. And we, that was her first recording. She had never been in a studio, didn't know. So I just had, I just created a, a slave reel for a vocal reel, okay. you know, submix two track, you know, submix what I had on the multi, put them on two tracks of another machine and just let her do about 12, 13 performances. What was the tune? We had a huge hit. Oh, shit. Anyway, it's on that same record on the Starship album. Oh, it's on and, the album. Uh, what I did is just spent a day and a half taking, you know, words and syllables and comping from the 12 or 13 tracks I had. I, I created the lead vocals, and that started her career. Wow. Which was just, you know, fate, man. I don't know. You know, did you work I with. I walked into that club, and within 10 minutes, I, I thought that was the voice of these songs. So, question Did you work with Phyllis a lot after that? No, no. I she had this boyfriend manager, Larry Alexander, who was insane. And I, I just, I had at that point, I had eighteen artists on different la different labels, and I and 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 four of those were on my label with Columbia with Epic. Okay. I, I didn't have time to mess around. It was just too much hassle to me. I get it. So it was God bless you. You've got you've started your career. You've got two hit records. She was on two hit singles, and uh, no, I didn't. You know, uh, Larry, a year, two years later, Larry called me back with Clive Davis on the phone saying, asking me, and I just, I just did not, it cost too much, you know? Mm -hmm. All it. the bullshit.
shit that came with us. She was a very intensely deserved. She she had a deep problems, which of course ended up in her suicide. Yeah. And Larry was just oh man, Larry was like her pimp. It was sad. Uh, yeah, I I couldn't no. I wanted you know. I loved what she was about, her vocal, but everything else was just a nightmare. And I didn't have the psychological energy at that point because I was in the middle of so many records. It was ridiculous. And I, I get it. Yeah. So I know I asked you this before, but I just want to reiterate. Who um, would you say were your musical influences? I know you had a lot, and I know you referenced some people that you actually believe that are geniuses that you work with. So could you the only, yeah, uh, musical influences, it's impossible. There were so many, so many. And I have a, such, I have a huge, broad interest in music. If you were to hang out with me and listen to what I listened to in 48 hours, you'd be amused. <laughs> I mean, I go all the way from, say, African Juju to Cumbia music out of Colombia to uh, Lionel Hampton, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just jump all, all over the place. A, a friend of mine is Questlove. Uh, and Quest has the same same musical interest in that they're so broad, it's amazing. Uh, the only artist that I was able to be with and work with in a studio context that I saw thought had true genius, was, you know, obviously Miles, uh, Herbie Hancock, Stevie Wonder. Okay. Now, the term genius is used too much. And I've worked with such wonderfully gifted people, but those those individuals stand out to me. Okay. Uh, I was and continued to be in awe of them and what they effortlessly created, which was genius. I mean, the first time I was with Stevie in his Wonderlove studio, if I didn't know he was blind, I would have. It would have never come up. <laughs> That's not the guy, first time I've heard this. <laughs> I mean, it fucked me up. Guy would, uh, you know, he's working the board. He's walking around. He, you know, I finally I said, "Dude, hey," he goes, "What? Are you blind, really?" He laughed his head off. <laughs> he said, "Not in here, I'm not." I said, "You can tell me no shit." Wow. Yeah. So he could navigate around the studio effortlessly. Oh, it, I, as I said, if you walked in and didn't know, you would never even think about. It. That's crazy, man. You know, he had shades on, but so what? Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. It freaked me out. I actually had similar experience with another blind musician, with Larry Coriel and the Eleventh House. Mike Mandel, the keyboard player, mm-hmm. was similar that way in certain environments. But this was Stevie's. You know, this was his place. This was his, his, he almost lived in Wonder. He was in Wonderlove for, what, 18, 20 hours a day. Even had a bedroom for him there. He didn't want to go home. That's dedication. Oh, yeah, because it was just always happening with him. It was always in him. All he had to do was let it out. Mm. It's like turning on a spigot. The water's in there. Right? You turn it on, it's going to come out. So with that Stevie, it was always going on. It's so hard to explain. Well, that's... I no, just it, did. it makes sense. It makes sense. It, I mean, oh my God. So would you say... Talk about being blessed. Oh, shit. Uh, anyway. You've done over, you know, 70, 70 plus records, right? Yeah. Are there any ones like, do you have a it's like naming a child. Uh, do you do you have your top yeah. five, or you know, uh, or just top, top in the periods in your life, like music that you really uh, enjoyed making? No, because I I would always, I if I ever found myself bored or feeling like I was going to work, mm-hmm. I switched it up immediately. <laughs> if I if I ever felt like I was going to work, it was the it was over. I, I worked my ass off, but I never went to work. If you know what I mean. Understood. I went to play. And I would get bored very uh, easily with uh, doing the same old thing. Like most producers are typecasts. Luckily, I never dealt with that, so I was never typecast. So I was able to do music in almost every in every single genre. I think the only music I haven't done is is uh, 
what is that music from Minnesota, man? You know, came from Germany. Bluegrass? No, man. <laughs> that's the, that's no. Kentucky, but uh. No, no, no. I'm just drawing a blank, but some lame shit. Anyway, I, I would go from a hard rock uh, album into an R&B album, into a jazz album, into a, an, uh, an African album. Two of my Grammy nominations are reggae. You know, I would just be mixing it up all the time. I just loved, and then blending blending things I picked up from one idiom into another. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there we got a mix-up, and that's when you get some, if you're lucky, you come up with some fresh things. Even though that wasn't the point, it was just satisfying my curiosity. <laughs> Listen to that ego. Lord have mercy. But, <laughs> but that's what it was about. That's what it was. I get it. You know? I was the first person to bring a drum machine into Kingston, Jamaica. <laughs> really? It was crazy. Tell me about that. But I... Oh, no. If you can. All right. So, I got to know Bob and the Whalers in the last few years. Okay. Became very friendly with Judy Mowat and the I-Trees. One day, Rita Marley's on the phone asking me to come down and uh, produce uh, Judy. And Judy had had two or three uh, very successful albums. And so I put together some writers and various uh, people and new people down there and then brought a drum machine down there. And it was it was it was an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> but we got nominated for a, uh, a Grammy. That's awesome. man. That's incredible. And it did quite well, you know, in the, in the reggae communities around the world. And, um, you know, but I don't have, uh, I can't, I can't point to any one record or one album to say that this was my favorite. Uh -huh. No. Is there, uh -huh. is there anybody in particular that you like really enjoyed working with in the studio or even, you know, on, oh, on stage? I mean, everybody, or I wouldn't have worked with them. <laughs> Well, no, really, it's I get it. you, you cannot go into a creative situation and not be vibing. Or if you do, there's nothing coming from it. Mm, right. I don't care how right it is and how in tune the shit is. It has nothing to do with that. It's about a vibe, isn't it? It is. Which is what's sad about, and boy, do I sound my age, you know what I mean? But a lot of the music since the mid-90s is programmed and sequenced and straightened out. That's some insane shit because a lot of the magic come about because they're mistakes. Something slightly undertuned, something slightly overtuned and making and rubbing against something over here that's creating this whole vibe, which then you build on you know what I mean? Tempo's slightly changed over here because of dynamics, because they're meant to and not quantized and straightened out. When you get people playing in a room, there's this magic between them, which is there, and, and the timing that is, is between the musicians there. You're not looking at a graph in a computer. That's spiritual. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, listen, man, it's just reality. It's just that I, I cannot listen to well, I wouldn't be on Spotify because Spotify they're pigs. And they hired that pig, so fuck them. <laughs> well, come on, man. I mean, that's just, that's another thing. But okay. it's actually the same thing, too. But if you listen to this shit, it doesn't grab you. The frequencies, just like, like, like take, take any streaming service. Um, Jay-Z has a higher level with a greater bit rate uh, service that's, that's decent. But like, take Spotify, that shit is compressed, the life is sucked out of it, you don't get the same visceral feeling from the music. You don't. You know, it was the same thing when it went from vinyl to uh, digital. What a lot of people don't know is that we love the sound of multi-phase distortion, which was technically what it was, but people call it warmth. Who gives a fuck what it was, but it was there. And analog recording is a lot wider. The reverb doesn't just die, it fades. I mean, if you really study this, you know, and then you, and then, and then when you take in what causes an emotional response, it's all these little factors. 
And a lot of those little factors are not around anymore. So we're dealing with product. Or we're just dealing with a monochromatic beat. You know what I mean? Yeah, it seems like you're speaking it's, to it's, a, it's interesting. a lack you of know? authenticity in the music now then. But a lot of people don't know. They, they can't put their finger on it because they, <laughs> yeah. they're just dealing with what's available today. Well, I, you know. Yeah, I tell all musicians and artists, I usually say, listen to music, study music as if you studied history. And you'll see, you you'll, 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 you'll get some takeaways and you, you don't, you won't think as highly of some of the stuff that you hear today. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's some good stuff. Mm. What's frustrating is there's some great music going, but the way it gets to us, it strips away the soul of it. By the time we get it, we get a very organized, a very in tune, a very stand up straight version. <laughs> You know what I mean? That's compressed the shit so you have no dynamics. You know, oh, Lord, man. If there's any tips or, you know, things that you would like to see artists do today or, or musicians or producers, could you give us some of that? Just always go for the music, go for the soul, go for the feel and the emotional response. Okay. Don't get caught up into making everything so straight up and down perfect in your computer. When this shit started to come by, I used to sit with a drum machine. Now, this is some crazy shit, but it's reality. Mm. We used to program mistakes. <sighs> Now, why I didn't stop there? Because I was intrigued into all. I, you know, I had to go through it to come out the other end. You know what I mean? So I had, I couldn't criticize. I had to get into it, and I was one of the earliest people to use drum machines and synthesizers and whatnot. But I found myself again programming mistakes, and I, I went home one night. I said to my wife, "I should have just hired a drummer. Come in." <laughs> why did I spend all that time when a drummer could have knocked this off in a half an hour? So that what I'm saying is go for the soul. Don't go for, to try to go for the, the, the straight musical perfection. It's totally in tune. It's totally in time. And it's totally sterile. Go for the soul of what you're after. And with the technology today, learn what you can do to get away from the sound of the technology today. Because you can. There are various things you can do right now to bring a lot of that back well at least some of it okay. and that's all i can say go from your heart and soul don't go with your head your head's just gonna fuck you up hey real words. i'm telling you <laughs> hey. i learned the hard way i appreciate it okay you so know, a prince man prince was a uh, i help oh, here's an anecdote so i'm uh cutting the oh it's right after starship actually okay. it was that same album i started with lee rittenauer one day this uh executive who's a friend of mine at warner brothers bob krasnow calls me up and goes skip can i stop by i just signed an artist and he wants he's going to produce and uh you know probably play all the instruments on his own album i said bob what they're gonna what <laughs> bob what do you what do you, what are you smoking? What are you, Bob? He goes, Skip. This is, I said, come on over and come over at a certain time, which is like the tail end of a date, whatever I was doing with Lee, and we'll, and we'll go out to lunch. So Bob shows up, and with this little diminutive kid out of Minneapolis, <laughs> he's, they sit in the back, you know, I finish up the date. He comes up, and he's very, very um, uh, soft-spoken, and he says, uh, I've got some of your records. I'm a, I'm a fan of yours. I said, oh, uh, thank you. You know, what, what do you do, right? And there was something about him, you know? Not, nothing happened. Mu music, I didn't hear anything. I, just, I had this vibe. So I just put them together with my engineer who happened to be there, you know? I said, here, take this guy. And then I know the studio up in Sausalito in Northern California, you know, the, you know, in, in uh, Marin County, the record plant, Sausalito the record plant. And I said, I could, I could work out a deal there where you can have, you know, get, get the whole studio for a month or two for this price and you live there and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So a month or two go by and one Sunday afternoon, I get this call from my engineer, who, this engineer who I hadn't heard from. 
I was actually in London recording, and I got back to L.A., and he called, and he, Skip, remember that cat? Oh, yeah, I said, how's it, how did, how that working out? Did, did he, did he write everything and produce and do all that stuff? You know, I'm expecting to hear this horror story. Uh. And Tommy goes, Skip, and I never heard Tommy, and I've never heard him since talk like this. He was in another key. He, his, his voice was an octave higher. He goes, you're not going to believe it. He couldn't even articulate. He couldn't even talk to me. I said, come on, man. What are you trying to say? This guy's, this guy's a genius. This guy, you wouldn't believe it. Well, it was Prince. And it was the first <laughs> album. <laughs> wow. From then on, when Prince ever came in L.A., I had the best seats. <laughs> That's awesome, man. You helped him oh, create his first album. I really didn't get to, you know, we would have, I may have, you know, spent, no more than an hour of my life with him since then, uh, scattered over uh, two decades. Wow. But uh, what a trip. <laughs> I don't even know where that came from. Listen, that's an incredible story, because I, I know the yeah, first time just, we talked, well, I didn't get that. You know, people want me to do a book, and I'm not, and I'm thinking about it right now. Uh, two publishing uh, houses have offered and want to do. And I said, well, because right now, things about music and musicians and producers, for some reason, it's the most publishers' highest selling books. Mm. I don't know why. They don't know why, but it's just the way it is. And I said, look, what I don't want to do is I don't want to do what I started here and then I went through, you know what I mean? I said, I just want to come up with some clever title and just do stories that may not connect with those story, you know what I mean? Each chapter is a different story. And in, within those stories, much like this interview, you, possibly, you can get a f sort of an idea and feel of what was happening and what is happening, if that made any sense to you, sir. Yeah. These are stories within stories that I believe. You know what I mean? You know? Uh, yeah. It's just like scenes from the control room or some shit. Scenes, <laughs> the way shit really happens, the way things come down. It's capturing magic. How to get, my whole job is setting up an atmosphere and being able to musically and technically steer atmosphere for magic to be created. That's the whole, that's the real deal. Understood. Well, if it's not just mechanical. I mean, you know, which a lot of unfortunately stuff seems to be nowadays. Yeah, too much of it. If you think, you know, learn, learning to realize, learning to be mm. able to recognize that something, some shit might come down if you do this and that, you know? Yeah. And I think if you're looking for a name for your book or your yeah. book and your movie, Capture and Magic, I think is a good one. You, you might say have that, it. Say that again. I said, if, if you're capture, looking for Capturing capture, Magic. Capturing Magic. Dude. That's it. Because I have been staying up at, I've been staying I've been looking at a ceiling for a week or two, <laughs> trying to come up with something. Capturing magic, capturing magic colon scenes from a something. Isn't it? Yeah, that. Yeah, you got the good. You got the beginning. Hey, I, thank you, boss. Listen, thank, <laughs> thank you because you gonna write this book. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm well equipped for that. You know, I, I can write, but I don't know if I'd be the greatest author. But maybe, maybe doing the dictation, asking you the questions. Me either. <laughs> Because <laughs> I don't want to do a normal type of book. I want to jam. I hear that. We sit at, well, just what we are doing right this moment. And it could be organized and cleaned up, but you just blow. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think the format will have to be something like this because this is, this is only our second conversation, right? And yeah. you gave me even more information and more stories than the first time. Things I didn't you know about. two more, I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> Play more. I mean, come on, 40 years, 70-some albums, and all the different types of music. See, that's the one hook I could pull from. I would be in so many different scenes with many different types of people with different points of view, different cultural backgrounds, languages, you know. Yeah, as a, as a producer, as a musician, as an artist, you've, you've lived many lives, sir. I've been at the biggest buffet table in the world, dude. That is awesome. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm the luckiest motherfucker I've ever met. I swear to God. I must have been Mother Teresa in the last day. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. <laughs> That's incredible. Plus, there's another whole political side, too, that I was very heavily involved in, especially in the 60s. 
Oh, you told me briefly about that. I don't know if you want to touch on that. Yeah, I was. I, I'm a progressive activist now. I was a radical activist then. Okay. I mean, we're talking about stuff I don't want to talk about on the phone. Yeah, but I, I do remember that you said that you did used to help feed people within the city of Philadelphia. And I, I... Well, that, yeah, that was one. My wife and I wrote for various underground newspapers. We were part of organizations and I got you. We helped put together the March on the Justice Department, you know. That's awesome. Man. Should, that should be happening now, but the youth is asleep. I mean, the Nazis, <laughs> they're about to take over the everybody's asleep the I'm mu- getting out hey, the music did not help I think uh, you created music for liberation yeah it's what's going on now no one is doing nothing they're 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 playing with their social media and shit they don't understand that what's really going on this is very much like Germany in 1929 I no, I'm too old to fight if I was younger, I'd be arming up. I'm telling you, it's gospel. It's the way it is. This is no passing weather pattern. Understood. This is the shit right now. And you better get you and your family and make plans, or you're going to get caught in some shit. Because the pig, what's happening to me, and, and it's sort of, I'm sort of happy because it's the last hurrah of the white man. Is how I look at it. I'm telling you, man. I got you. Sad motherfuckers, and but they're going to take a lot of people down, and they're going to take this country down, and they're already taking it down. If five or ten years ago, I would say, "What's tell you or anybody else what's happening right now?" You'd say, "You're out of your fucking mind. That can never happen here in America." Yeah. Now, if any sense of history, nothing new is happening. This shit has gone on for thousands of years. That's correct. Now the pig is up again, and uh, and if you want to have some semblance of life, get the fuck out, or you're going to be trapped. And do you have children? Not yet. A lot of thinking to do, my man. I hear that. I, I, I'm 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 already it's with not you. Nice. I am already reality, where you're at. I'm already aligned with you. If you with that thought process. Yeah, it's just reality, man. You know, look out the window. It's raining or not. You could try to con yourself. It's not really it's sprinkling. No, it's no, come on. He said it's pouring out here. Yeah. Come on, it's going to be pouring in a minute. Yeah, because these pigs are going to get ensconced in a couple of years and forget about it. Just it, it, it's the way it's always been too. You know, if if you pay attention, if anyone pays attention, none of this should be a surprise. No, but just like. It's a disappointment. Music seems to be a lost art. The study of history is also lost amongst many of us. Yeah, and you know what that always does? Causes it to to repeat repeat itself. Hello, the monkeys just came off the tree, out from the caves, and they think they got some hot shit with their computer. (laughs) Bullshit. We are small-minded monkeys that are trying to make the big jump. And the only way it seems like the big jump is a nuclear holocaust, the... uh, the civilization being reduced down again because it has to because we're killing what I think God is and that's his planet we're killing it yeah. I mean it's just it's fact there's no speculation everyone's junked up hooked on fucking fossil fuels you know this country is they, they, they talk about opioids get the fuck out of here it's greed and fossil fuels that are bringing the earth down. It's real simple, man. It's nothing complicated. And then once, if you jump about a thousand years, if if there's anyone left, then that'll be probably the next step in what we call humanity as far as mutation and a step forward. But the shit that's going to go on for the next so many hundred years, whoever's surviving. Yeah, we need to get there first. Rageous. So we're going to New Zealand. Nice. And hide out. Listen. Try to stretch it for as long as we can. Great creative community in New Zealand. Unbelievable cultural scene, musical scene, film scene. Unbelievable. Two of the world's top directors have built billion dollar studios there, of all places. I did not know that. Oh, yeah, James Cameron and Hobbit Dude. 
Oh, Lord of the Rings creator. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, huge. I mean, they're employing thousands of people. So I know. And you... one of my closest friends is Taj Mahal, and his whole family's down there. Okay. All of his kids and grandkids are in, in New Zealand. Did you tell me that you and Taj are actually working on a project? Because that's what I was yeah. going to ask you about your, your yeah, future projects. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to, though I've never directed. I'm, I'm a, uh, another love and hobby is film and film, film critique, and I've been a, a film festival judge. But uh, I want to be involved in Taj's. I'm putting, helping him put together a, uh, a documentary. Okay. And. I don't know if I'm going to have the chops to direct it, but I'll be involved in production. And then we're talking about doing a solo album, another one again. I I produced one of his records in the past, but he's just a good friend of mine. And actually, it's his biographer wants to work with me on my book, and we'll see. Uh, It's a story that needs to be told, I'll tell you Yeah, and then I'm getting involved with a... um, a 10 episode documentary on R&B okay. uh, for Netflix. All right, that's awesome. Yeah. So it's yeah, just, so it's, is it going to just retirement. document R&B throughout the years? or and, and, Yeah, everything okay. R&B, yeah, exactly. Starting, you know, starting to trace its evolution in the 30s all the way up. That'll be amazing. If you got a couple hours, like <laughs> But, Definitely yeah, do. it's going to be good. It's going to be really good. Okay. I, I feel like this won't be our last conversation, so, but I do want to. I do want to ask the question I asked before um, about your legacy. What do you What do you see your legacy, or what do you want it to be? I don't know. I've never really thought in those terms. I think you asked me that before, and you stumped <laughs> me. Just to be able to just know that I've helped uh, spread. Uh, new points of view possibly in music around the world my whole motivation was to give back what i was given between uh, ages eight and uh, the rest of my life music was my best friend music saved me music showed me that there were other people out there that were similar to me that's real if that makes sense so my whole goal was to try to give back i could not have done anything else i would have probably died in jail well, who knows what the fuck would happen to me, man? But you know, that's that's all I tried to do. As far as a legacy, I don't know, you know. And I hit it. I hit it sometimes. Would have liked to have done a lot more, but you know, I did enough. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still going. Yeah. Well. You know, I can't get away from it. I got tired of making records about 15 years ago because I had been through it all. I just, the spark, the spark, as I mentioned before, someone wanted me to get involved and I went to a session and, and I just, the spark wasn't there and I just stopped. Makes sense. Like you said, when you don't love it, you feel like you're working, you leave. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at my watch thinking about what I was going to watch tonight. (laughs) And right away, I went, "Uh uh-oh, the bell is ringing my friend too bad because that project turned out to be a multiple uh, a multi-platinum album oh wow <laughs> of course but i would have just gone through the paces uh well anyway all right boss all right well that's all that's all i have for you today skip all right then hopefully all of this will stay and we will uh, whatever you do what you do whatever you need to do do it yeah i'm, I'm gonna have this ready for next week that's my goal by next friday to have it out. Right. If you have any other ideas about the book, give me a holler. Oh, I definitely will, man. I don't man. care about, I mean, if we've got a vibe going, and maybe you never thought of yourself as an author, you know, you just do it, man. I'll, I'm with you. Like I had too many people tell me when I was young, you can't do that. you got to be in Hollywood. Fuck you, I'm doing it. I don't care how. I didn't know how, <laughs> but I did. I still scratch my head, but you know. I think it was, you know, divine intervention or whatever you want to call it. You were on your yeah, path you know, since eight. Getting off your ass and doing it, not thinking about it and talking about it, going out and doing it. And anybody say no, that was just fuel to me. Oh yes, mm-hmm. I am. Oh yes, I am. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Oh, you gotta have that chip. Oh, this business. 
If you don't have a good sense of self and where you're going, it will eat you up and spit you out. Forget about it. The most competitive line of work of commercial arts in the world. Man, I had friends that stayed that were in the commodity market. One guy came in from Chicago. He was actually a friend of my brother-in-law's and stayed with me for a week and said, man, I want to go back to the dullness and security of the commodities market, <laughs> which is an insane wow. market, if you know anything about it. Yeah. He said, this is out. I said, yeah, but, you know, I know how to play the game to get what I need to do done, so, and I'm still doing it. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, so, well, is um, that the secret to your longevity? I guess so. Yeah, oh yeah, I just, I'm a survivor. I just didn't understand, no. If I wanted to do something, it was going to get done, and I didn't know, however way. And guess what? There was never a time that it didn't get done okay. when I had that feeling and drive. That's awesome. All right. Yeah, whether it should have or not, but still. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> All right, boss, I'm out. All right, Skip. All right. I'll talk to you soon, man. That's it for this episode of the Things I Haven't Done podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next episode. And in the meantime, like, subscribe, and share.